Morning. That's traditionally where you say good morning. <laughs> okay, um, good morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. You know, one of my favorite Bible passages is 1 Corinthians 9, where the Apostle Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews to Christ. He says, to the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile to win the Gentiles. He's saying, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to understand the culture around me so I can win them for Christ. And all of us as Christians, as missionaries, as ambassadors of Christ, as we would say, we want to do the same. And I believe there are a number of ways that we can do that in our current culture, but one of them is simply by inviting people to church at Christmas time. Why is that? It's because, well, it's just simply quite easier to invite someone to church at Christmas, or Easter would be another example, than it is just a regular Sunday. Now, Personally, I believe this is going to change probably in the next 10 to 15 years as we have a whole generation of Americans who's growing up right now that they don't go to church. But a lot of people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, they grew up going to church at Christmas. And many of them have very fond memories of doing so. And so this is a wonderful opportunity for us to trust in God, to be bold this week, and to make the most of every opportunity, as the book of Colossians says. And I think there's just an awesome opportunity in front of us. So I urge you, when you come on Thursday or Friday, whenever you're coming this week, have somebody sitting next to you. Maybe it's a parent or a sibling or a coworker or a friend, have somebody next to you so they can hear, maybe for the first time, that God loves them so much that he sent his son for them on Christmas. So be bold, trust in God this week, take a risk. Okay, let's get into our passage this morning. So everybody uh, grab a Bible, whether you brought your own, if you didn't, uh, everybody grab a Bible uh, from the chair in front of you. We're going to be on page 721. It's a little bit odd. We are just about to Christmas on the calendar, but here's a church as we're going through the book of Luke. Uh, we find ourselves this morning uh, two days before Easter uh, on Good Friday. And so we are studying uh, basically Jesus's life in the book of Luke, and we have reached the day of his crucifixion. So Jesus has been arrested. There's been a couple of trials that have happened, and the clock has now ticked past midnight. So it's probably one-ish, two in the morning on that Good Friday, the Friday that Jesus is killed. So let's take a look at our passage, actually just three verses today, and then we're going to look at some other things as well. So Luke chapter 22, uh, we are on verse 63, so find that little 63. It says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Now, the Gospels tell us that Jesus is actually going to be mocked three different times on this Friday. And since this is a really short passage today, and because Luke doesn't spend hardly any other time, uh, hardly any time on the second and third mocking of Christ, and thus we're not going to cover them later in the series, what I actually want to do this morning is I want to look, if, you're allow, if you will allow me, which I don't know how you stop me at this point, I want to look at all three of the mockings of Jesus on this Good Friday. So chronologically, uh, the one that we just read is actually the first of the three mockings. So Jesus faces six very false and very quick trials, if you will, from about midnight to 9 a.m. when the crucifixion starts. There's three Jewish trials, 
followed by three Roman trials. So where we are right now, contextually, in our passage in Luke 22, the second of the six trials has just finished at the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. Now, when you read through Luke, Luke doesn't actually tell us what went on in that second trial. He instead focuses on outside in the courtyard where Peter is denying Christ, and that's what we talked about last week. But some of the other gospel writers, uh, the the chroniclers of Jesus' life, uh, Matthew, for instance, does tell us what went on inside during that second trial. And if we see that, it helps us actually make sense a bit more of this first mocking in Luke. So I'll just throw up on the screen for you. This is what Matthew is telling us what's happening in, the, in the, that second trial, which was the, right before the first mocking of Jesus. He says this, the high priest said to him, that's to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so. Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, that's a title for Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus actually makes this incredible prophecy about how he will come back someday. And so now, if you, if you still have it open in front of you on your lap and you look at our passage in Luke, how are the guards mocking him? What are they saying? If you look at it, they're saying, prophesy. Who hit you? And why are they doing that? Well, they're mocking him because in this trial, he just prophesied. He made this incredible prophecy that not only was he the Messiah, that someday he's going to come back riding on the clouds. And so they're mocking him. They're going, come on, buddy. You're not a prophet. You can't even tell us who hit you right now. And yet he could, right? But he chooses not to. There is actually deep irony in this first mocking of Christ because the very fact that they're mocking him is even a fulfillment of one of his earlier prophecies. In fact, the very first passage that we looked at in the book of Luke when we moved into this building was this prophecy. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 32, it says this. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man, that's himself, will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. And so Jesus prophesies that this exact thing, this mocking, will happen. And as they mock him, they say, you're not a prophet. Even though he prophesied that that very thing would happen. And you can even take into account just outside Remember, he correctly prophesies at the Last Supper that Peter is going to deny him three times before the rooster crows, and that just happened as well. And so little do do these guards know as they're mocking him about being a prophet that they're actually mocking the one who was probably the greatest prophet, among other things, to ever walk the face of the earth. Okay, so that's the first mocking of Christ. The second mocking of Christ actually occurs after Jesus' sixth and last trial. That's his, his final meeting with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Uh, we see this one in the book of Matthew. Here's what it says. Matthew chapter 27. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. So this is probably 20 to 30 soldiers. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. 
After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And Pilate has actually already ordered Jesus to be flogged at this point. So he, he's incredibly weak while this is happening. And they mock him. And think about this. They, they put a scarlet robe on him. Scarlet is the color of royalty. So they're mocking him as a king, right? Instead of giving him this beautiful crown of a king, they inflict more pain and punishment on him. And they give him a crown of thorns. Instead of the, an ornate scepter of a king, they give him this weak reed as a staff and they make him hold it and then they bow before him saying hail king of the jews it's mockery at its worst right and even worse actually then then their mockery turns to violence and they spit on him and they strike him with the very staff that they just made him hold and it's all just a complete misunderstanding of who jesus is right they don't think he's a king But in truth, he's the king of kings. That's the second mockery of Christ. And then the third mockery, remember this is all the same day, is while Jesus is on the cross, and that we get from the Gospel of Mark. It says this, Mark chapter 15, verse 29. It says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, so, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, we, we know from the narrative that one of the robbers on the cross actually eventually changes his mind and believes in Christ. But the rest, they continue to mock, thinking that they know how this is going to end. Right? But of course they don't. So what do we do with this as modern-day believers, these three mockings of Christ all on the same day? Why are they in Scripture like this? How do we take this and apply it to our lives today in the 21st century? Well, for one... I think one of the things that we can acknowledge from these three texts is that we, as Christ followers, as imitators of him, must realize that we too will be mocked for our faith. There is something about us as Christians that can bring out a negative response in others. Now that may sound kind of like an odd thing to your ears, but I want you to just intellectually think about this. Jesus is not being mocked or persecuted or killed because he was mean or sinful or arrogant or anything like that. Think about it. Jesus is kind. He's truthful. He's forgiving. He's perfect and yet mocked. You know, I, I've thought actually a lot about these passages over the years because in part they are deeply personal for me. You know, I think a lot of us, we try not to sometimes, but I think we, we look back at our, our greatest, our biggest sins. And for me, uh, some of those were when I was in high school, before I knew Jesus Christ. Because when I was in high school, I was a mocker. I literally mocked Christians for their faith. I mocked them for going to church. I mocked them for wearing Christian clothing. I mocked them for going to Christian camps. I remember when, when I came to Christ, 
which was about June, right after my high school graduation, I, I literally went on an apology tour, apologizing to all the people whose images their minds or their faces today are so burned in my head that I had mocked, just asking for forgiveness. And so I've asked myself a lot in my life, why did I do that? Why did I, why did I mock them? I mean, it's one thing to disagree, but it's another thing to mock. I think the answer for me and the answer for so many that are still in those shoes today is that those Christians, really through no fault of their own, they made me feel deeply uneasy inside because they were so sure about their belief that they were going to heaven and that I was not and that I was wrong for how I was living my life. And that set off a nerve within me. I didn't want to be wrong. I don't want to think about sin and eternity and all of those deep things. And so the best way that I knew how to deal with it at the time was to, was to mock them. I mean, I, I guess I must have felt that if I could tear them down, right, then their words must not be true, or maybe they at least wouldn't be so bold to tell me those things again. You know, I think now, years later, as I look back on it and think about what I know about God, what I know about God's word, is that, you know, there is something deep within every soul that feels uneasy when they begin to understand that God wants all of them and that they're not giving all of themselves to God. People feel the conviction of their sins, but rather than repent, what we tend to do sometimes is we tend to lash out on those who would speak about those things or even those who subscribe to such a belief. And thus, I will tell you, that any Christian who consistently walks out their faith and better yet talks about their faith is going to be mocked. In fact, I remember, because this was such a weird contrast in my life, so I came to Christ uh, basically right, you know, a month or two before I went off to college, and when I was in college, my freshman floor gave me a nickname. I shouldn't even tell you this, but uh, my nickname uh, freshman year was, they called me Straight Edge, and they, which is ridiculous, right? And for them, it wasn't because I was making anyone feel bad about how they lived or that the vast majority of them went out and you know, partied and got wasted like many college students did, but it was the fact that they were so frustrated that I just wouldn't go with them. And I said, it's because I have this new relationship with Jesus, and so I'm just not gonna do that. And so in the discomfort with their own lives, they mocked me. But I didn't let it faze me because I had literally just been them months earlier. Let me tell you something really interesting that I don't think enough Christians think about nowadays. If you are not currently being mocked for your faith, you're probably not doing something right. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not talking about those crazy people that they go on social media and they're screaming all their stuff and their beliefs and their politics and people are mocking them. Not not that. I'm talking about people who just walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus. I'm talking about not hiding your faith. This is what we talked about last week. This is a big theme of this section, that you don't follow Jesus at a distance. I think of some of the most 
godly people that I know, that Jesus is their first love. They are in love with Jesus. And when you're in love with somebody, you just naturally talk. They're just naturally living out a life of faith, and they're talking about it because it's really important to them. And yes, sometimes people are like, that guy's a little crazy, right? And they don't do anything wrong. They're just talking about how much they love Jesus. And so, yes, sometimes they get mocked for it. But I would say if you're never mocked, or no one ever thinks that you're a little different, or no one ever is pressing back on your beliefs. In fact, you can't even think of an example in your mind of the last few years when this has happened. Something is not right with how you're living out your faith right now. And I don't think enough suburban Christians think like this. They think, okay, I'm learning my Bible, I'm going to house groups, I'm going to classes, I'm raising my kids to make good choices. What we're talking about today is a major part of being faithful to Jesus, of being a Christ follower. And if no one's ever pressing back against you, something's not right. I think part of the problem here is a lot of American Christians, even more so Minnesotan Christians, I would say, falsely believe that there is this sort of safe and neutral option where we can believe in Jesus, but just kind of keep our beliefs to ourselves. And what I want to say to you this morning is that is not only unscriptural, it's actually dangerous. And yet many of us are stuck here. Rather than share the good news of salvation with people, many of us prefer this sort of neutral option where we will just sort of sit back and show our love and kindness to people, hoping that one day they will come up to us and say, I've seen how amazing you are, tell me how to be saved. And I just want to tell you right now, it's probably never going to happen. But here's where it's dangerous. By never sharing the truth with people, by only showing them how nice and how kind you are, you actually are sharing a false gospel with people. I'm going to tell you right now, and I don't know if you've thought of it this way, so many of your neighbors and your coworkers, they look at you and they're trying to deduce what it is to be a Christian. They're trying to figure out in their mind how they can be right with God. And I will let you in on what they're thinking. They're thinking, okay, if I want to get right with God, I've got to be like them. I've got to be extra kind. I've got to be really generous. I've got to get my life together. Can I get my kids in order? And I've got to snow blow my neighbor's driveway with a smile. <laughs> and that's not it at all. You're actually presenting a false gospel to people. They are getting heresy from your actions, thinking, yes, if I want to get right with God, I just got to get my life together like them, because your actions don't have words and context around them, and we are mostly doing that because we are afraid of being mocked, but tell them the truth. You tell them the truth, that you are a mess, because they think you're great, You tell them the truth. You tell them the truth that you are a mess. And the only reason that you're not a complete mess is because you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you have a relationship with Jesus and it's him that's moving in your life through kindness and generosity and love. But if we don't tell them, they're actually going to get a false gospel from your actions because we don't want to be mocked. And I would say for others of us, 
we're not living this out because we just simply don't even know enough non-believers who would mock us in the first place. Do you know that the average Christian, four years after they come to Christ, doesn't have any non-Christian friends anymore? Which is a major failing of how we live out the Christian walk in America. We sort of just protect ourselves in these Christian enclaves. But if you're truly living out your faith as a follower, as an imitator of Jesus, you will be rubbing shoulders with people who don't follow Christ. And sometimes they're going to think you're a little weird. And sometimes they might even mock you for it, but you'll also be winning people to Christ. And I urge you, when you are mocked or people make fun of you or they press back against you, respond like Christ. Notice in every passage today, all three of the mockings, Jesus does not fight back. He doesn't say, wait till I show you. You just wait till I call these angels down. I'm going to bring my revenge. He walks with a heart of forgiveness. I mean, really, did you even hear Jesus talking through those mockings? Not a lot. One of the only things that Jesus says during the mockings is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. I think this is actually becoming more important in our sort of polarized revenge-like culture. Jesus demonstrates that the proper response to hate is not more hate. It is love. And so we respond. When people mock us for our faith and our beliefs and our passion for Jesus, we respond with love and forgiveness. And not just because Jesus is our model and we want to imitate him, because that's what Jesus did for us. This is important. You're not going to find, especially when when persecution begins, and it's going to happen more and more in this country. The only way that we find the strength to actually forgive people is when we can first see ourselves as one of them. You can't forgive the mocker until you can first see yourself as a mocker. And maybe you mocked followers of Christ in your past like I did. Or maybe also like me, you have mocked Christ himself. And maybe you're going, I don't, I don't recall mocking Jesus before. Maybe you did, David, but not me. I would say, do we not come here on a Sunday morning and sometimes sing out to him, Jesus, you are all I need. God, to you, I surrender all. And then on Monday morning, we live like he doesn't exist. Is that not mockery? Or do we not, sometimes you get up on a Wednesday morning or Sunday morning or whatever it is, and you you take some time and you pray and you talk to God and you say, Lord, I want to be like you. Make me like you. Make me holy. Make me different than the people of this world. But we're so like everybody else in this world by the time it's the same day. It's later that evening. You're on your streaming service just like everybody else, and you're watching some show that you would never watch if Jesus Christ was sitting next to you on the couch. By the way, he kind of is. And you talk about people in a way that you would never talk about them if Jesus Christ was standing with you in the circle. But we say, make me holy, make me like you. We make a mockery of him when we say we're going to imitate you. You know, to mock is to imitate. It's to pretend, but in a ridiculous way. And sometimes that is us. Sometimes that is you. Sometimes that is me. I stand up here, and here I am with all the answers teaching the Bible, and I get to Monday, and there I am, 
messing up my life. And this is where the gospel is so powerful because you can't, the answer is not to leave here and go, oh, I'm such a mess. I'm so. The answer is the gospel. The answer is even though you would mock Christ with your life, that his love and forgiveness is deeper than that. He still loves you. He still forgives you. Just as he did the people who mocked him to his face. That's how we find the forgiveness for other people. Because he loved us, the mocker. These are the teachings of scripture. You remember the golden rule, right, which we actually get from Jesus? It's to what? Treat others like you want to be treated. Okay, thank you for your Minnesotan passion there. Um, but I believe the greater teaching of the New Testament is actually the platinum rule. And the platinum rule, as you see sort of fleshed out through the New Testament, through the letters, is treat others like Christ treated you. That even though I would mock Christ, that he would still love and forgive me. Mercy for the mocker. We give mercy because he gave mercy. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've read a couple of books now uh, by an author named Don Richardson. Uh, my favorite book by him is a, a book called Peace Child, which I'd recommend to you. But I also read a really good book by him, uh, this was maybe two or three years ago, called Lords of the Earth. Um, and both of those books actually are uh, true biographies and stories about missionaries who first brought the gospel, the good news of Jesus to the cannibalistic tribes of Papua New Guinea in the 1960s. I know it's supposed to be like Papua New Guinea, but I know, it's just Papua New Guinea to me. Okay, someone will correct me afterwards. But think about this. These missionaries, just amazing, right? Most of us are too afraid to bring up Jesus at work because we don't want to get talked to by HR. These missionaries are bringing the gospel to people who want to kill them and devour them. It was just incredible, right? Incredible faith. And sure enough, some of the missionaries are killed by the cannibalistic tribesmen. And yet, more missionaries keep coming. And some of them come even with their children to minister to some of the little less violent tribes nearby. Well, one of these families had four kids, ages one to nine. And while that family was being transported to a nearby village, uh, the pilot got confused in a valley. Kind of like, remember when Kobe Bryant died in the helicopter? Something, you just get confused where you are. And the pilot got confused, and he crashed. And only the nine-year-old boy survived. Unfortunately, the nine-year-old boy is discovered by the same cannibalistic tribe that had just killed the missionaries. But the tribesmen were just baffled beyond belief that these people kept coming to them, even though they had been killing them. And so one of the elder tribesmen decided that something's going on here. And he decides he's going to shield this nine-year-old boy and protect him. The rest of the tribe is coming at him, and they are armed. But this man has enough stature and leadership in his tribe that he protects the boy and says, you're not coming at him. Well, for days... The missionaries are flying over the area. They're trying to see if there's any survivors. Two days later, a helicopter with these missionaries looks down, and they see this small American boy up on the hillside. So they go down, and they rescue him. The nine-year-old boy runs to his rescuers, and he starts shouting out. He says, there's a man up on the hill who saved me, 
and he took care of me. And so these rescuers, who are also missionaries, they begin to leave all these gifts, all of these supplies, even like a knife to someone in Papua New Guinea in a, in a remote tribe was a huge gift, right? And they left all of these gifts for them to show them we love you, we care about you. Well, a few days later, some of the missionaries begin to feel like God is, something's going on here. Like God is doing something. We need to just follow what the Lord is doing. And they just said, we're going to trust that God is starting to warm up cold hearts here. So they take a huge risk and they walk with a translator to this particular tribe of cannibalistic tribesmen. And they get there and they first start by saying, we forgive you. We know that you killed our friends, but we forgive you. And then the tribesmen speak and they shockingly say this. They say, you keep coming to us. You keep coming to tell us something. Well, you just tell us what it is. <laughs> Teach it to us. And they share with him the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And within two years, 35 of those tribesmen become followers of Christ and are baptized, including some of the men who literally murdered the initial missionaries. And then get this, after their baptism, they come out of the water and they take communion with the missionaries. And as a table, they use the wing of the airplane that crashed when only the nine-year-old boy survived. And the tribesmen were spe specific. They were intentional. They said, we want to use that airplane wing as a symbol that you kept coming, as you didn't give up, that even though we oppressed you more than anyone could ever oppress you, you kept coming. And so I would say to you this morning, keep going. Keep going in boldness, even if someone would mock you. you many of you are going to leave this place, and over the next couple of days, you're going to have conversations with friends and family members. You'll invite them to this place on Thursday or Friday. Others of you, you'll, you'll go to your Christmas gatherings this week. And it may be around the table, maybe just you know, off on the side, one-on-one -on -one at a Christmas party in conversation, you'll start talking about what God is doing in your life and how much you just love Jesus and for what he's doing. Be brave. And even, even if you should get mocked, don't give up. Jesus is mercilessly mocked three times. And yet he keeps going forward because what he's going to accomplish is worth it, right? And we go forward because what God may do through our boldness, the saving of a soul for all of eternity is absolutely worth any sort of mocking we may incur. And if along the way people treat you harshly for your message, please, I beg of you, respond with kindness, with gentleness, with forgiveness, because that's what Christ did for us. And it's that sort of forgiveness and it's that sort of message that will change the world. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that your love and your forgiveness for us is so deep that you, you don't just love and forgive the people who've got their whole life together. You love the people who mocked you. This is unbelievable to me. And maybe, for some of you, maybe you're here this morning and the love of God is just hitting you in a different way or maybe it has over the last couple of weeks. I want you to know 
that God keeps coming for you. Maybe you keep wandering from him, but he keeps coming for you. And here he is again today, saying that he loves you. This is the amazing truth, that Jesus saw all of your life, all of it, all of your sins, all of your worst mistakes, and then he decided, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die in their place. And it is your faith in that that forgives you and sets you free. It's not you getting your life together. It's by inviting Jesus to be your savior and the leader of your life. And if you've never done that before, you can do that this morning. Just to get right with God, experience his forgiveness, and start a relationship with him. And it's just as simple as saying, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. Here is my life. And if you've never done that before, just kind of as people have their eyes closed here, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. If that's you, and you need to say, Jesus, I'm making you the leader of my life. I believe you died for me. Would you just tell him this morning? If that's you, would you just, while people have their eyes closed, would you just raise your hand up for 10 seconds or so up into the air and say, that's me. I just, I need that in my life. I need to be forgiven. If that's you, would you raise your hand just to tell the Lord? Anyone in this room? Best decision you can ever make in your whole life to invite him in. Anybody need to do that? All right. I don't see anybody, but this is, the, this is the amazing thing that we rejoice in, that we believe in. And if you're still thinking about it, just know that God loves you. He cares for you. And he wants to be in your life. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you just, your love is deeper than we could ever imagine. You are first. You are our first love, and may we put you first, God. We thank you that you first loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.